This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week I'm recording my intro from down south in the desert in a town called Kramim in Israel. And very excited about this week's guest for a couple of reasons. First of all, she's really cool and has some incredible experiences. And in particular, has life experience in areas that were wholly unfamiliar to me and really intriguing. But more than that, I think it goes to the heart of some of what I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast. Sarah Hurwitz is an extremely talented woman, but who comes from different religious angle than I do, and also different political angle than I do, and very likely different than many of you out there as listeners. She was a longtime speechwriter for Michelle Obama, and also worked with Hillary Clinton, and many other luminaries of the Democratic Party. And she's coming not from an Orthodox background, but from a more typical modern American Hebrew school, public school type of background. And yet she has found her own voice in that regard as well. So why do I say that this is touching at the essence of what I'd like to accomplish? We live in a very fractured world and we often find ourselves in situations whereby it's very difficult to learn from or be inspired by people with whom we don't agree on everything. And in Sarah, I find someone who is absolutely wonderful, who really is driven to do good and to promote Judaism in the world, even though we certainly differ on some of those conclusions when it comes to exactly how that might look. She's written written a book which I think is revolutionary in the fact that it challenges non-Orthodox Jews to think about Judaism in a much more serious way, not to dismiss Judaism as some archaic relic and not to believe that it's just a collection of songs and stories and not to sort of just pay lip service to quote-unquote Jewish identity without really investigating the substance of what that really means. That to me is a profound and absolutely vital message for our current Jewish moment in the United States and really around the world. And for someone of her pedigree and of her particular background to be saying that so forcefully, to me is a beautiful symbol, even if we diverge on precisely where that journey could or should lead. And likewise in the political realm, because she is entirely sincere in her convictions, and that healthy disagreement is actually just that, healthy. But unfortunately, it's been relegated out of the conversation. And so I'm very excited to bring you my conversation with Sarah. She and I have been trying for quite a while to connect, and a couple of months ago we finally did. We had a a really easy and natural conversation and she's had some extraordinary experiences 
at the highest levels of government, not just as a passive observer, but as a very active participant and really a shaper of much of what we have observed in our country, that being America at least. Meanwhile, as always, please subscribe to the podcast and help others do so as well. Follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on both Instagram and Facebook at Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Email for speaking engagement requests as well as comments and suggestions. Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And continue, please, to spread the word. And now, to my conversation with longtime elite political speechwriter, as well as passionate Jew and newly minted Jewish author, Sarah Hurwitz. We are here with Sarah Hurwitz, author, political speaker, longtime speechwriter for Michelle Obama, in fact, and the recent author of Here All Along, which is a sort of a spiritual chronicle, a personal journey of sorts, I suppose. And we'll get into all of that. But first of all, how are you, Sarah? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining. Sarah and I have been bouncing around for a while trying to make this happen. So uh, she's busy, I'm busy, but we finally got this going and I'm very excited. So Sarah, tell me a little bit about where you're from and what your background is like. Sure. So I grew up in a suburb of Boston. Uh, didn't have a lot of Jewish background. You know, went to Hebrew school, went to services a couple times a year, but just not not much education. And Which then suburb about, were you in? It was in Newton or no? It's a Wayland. Wayland. Small town. Okay. Cool. Yeah, small town. So um, lovely place to grow up, by the way. Um, and then you know, after my bat mitzvah, I pretty much just kind of stepped away. And then you know, about twenty five years later, I happened to randomly take an introduction to Judaism class. I broke up with a guy I'd been dating and I just had all this time on my hands. I wasn't in, you know, I was not in spiritual crisis. This was not some existential journey. I was just kind of bored and lonely. And I happened to hear about an introduction to Judaism class at the local JCC. And I figured like, yeah, couldn't hurt to learn something about Judaism, right? Like, why not? Um, but I was really blown away by what I found. You know, I, it's, I think you don't necessarily see what is so extraordinary about our tradition in two high holiday services, right? I don't think that's necessarily our most accessible work. Um, you don't see the incredibly thoughtful and wise Jewish ethics. You don't see the very sophisticated and moving Jewish theology and spirituality, right? You just, there's just so much you don't see in those two times a year. And so I was really moved. I started reading a lot of books, attending classes, attending silent Jewish meditation retreats, which are a big part of my life now. And then I eventually just decided I'd really like to write a book. Very cool. Now, first of all, who taught that class at the JCC? It kind of must be great. Yeah, no, no. It was a totally standard. You know, the class was, was very standard. You know, it was not you know, just a really standard intro to Judaism class taught by a lovely woman, but it wasn't, it wasn't the particular class, right? It was really more the material. Right. Now, growing up, it sounds like you had that pretty, I would say nowadays, conventional American Jewish upbringing where you had a bat mitzvah, uh, you went to Hebrew school, but uh, you kind of just sort of graduated from it, so to speak. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny. I, yes. And I also know people who had a very rich Jewish upbringing where they went to day school and for whatever reason, they were really turned off by it and they stepped away. Right. So I don't, you know, it's sort of hard to say like, oh, it was this particular upbringing that 
turned you away. I think people kind of fall away from Judaism for a whole host of reasons. So it's sort of hard to pinpoint, you know, just the, the upbringing. Right, I might argue they never, they're never gripped to begin with by it to, to fall away from perhaps. Yeah. Uh, in many cases. So what, what were you involved with early on? Were you into writing? Were you uh, sort of a big reader? What were your early interests? Yeah, you know, I've always been interested in politics, right? I, I, you know, always a big reader, always a big writer, but I, you know, I got my start in politics in 1998 in Vice President Al Gore's speechwriting office where I was just this little intern, just, you know, doing, you know, photocopies and things. Or creating the internet. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, that was so, uh, so taken out of context. Ridiculous. And most of the quaint. listeners probably won't even get the reference, so it's fun. No, exactly. We're too old. It seems very quaint now. Like, <laughs> things that used to be scandals, right? Where it's like, someone misspoke. Crisis. Like Obama <laughs> wore a tan suit. No. Um, yeah, so, you know, they were, I interned for just really, really lovely guys who are great speechwriters, and they just helped me get some junior jobs in speechwriting, did a bunch of losing campaigns, and then finally did the Obama campaign, which was cool. a winning campaign. So t- speech writing is kind of, um, you know, an unusual discipline. I don't think there's any, you know, majors for it that I know of. And, you know, how do you yeah. kind of get into that trajectory? Again, you were growing up in sort of a regular, sounds like Jewish upbringing. And where did you go to college? What kind of set you on yeah. that? So, you know, I, I went to Harvard for college and for law school, but I don't think, I don't think my particular education trained me to be a speechwriter, right? You're right. There really is no speechwriting degree or anything like that. I think what was helpful was actually that first internship where I began to understand what speech writing was. And then what was also tremendously helpful was that when I was in law school, I happened to meet a guy named Josh Gottheimer, who's now a Democratic congressman. But back then he was a classmate of mine and he had been a junior speechwriter for President Clinton before law school. And we met in law school and we decided to freelance speechwrite together. And he really taught me how you write to be heard and not read, right? Which are two different skills, right? Now I'm just going to pause there. I said, which are two different skills, period, right, period. <laughs> those are not appropriate sentences to be written down, right? You're right. not going to see those in an article, but right. for spoken language, they're totally fine. And that's the difference, right? Spoken language is just so much more um, informal, colloquial, loose. There's just, it depends a lot on rhythm and cadence and expression. So I think really working with Josh was what I think really helped initially. And then just working for people like Barack and Michelle Obama, right? That was just, they're phenomenally gifted writers and speakers just naturally, right? They are naturals. And they, I mean, man, you know, especially I worked most of the time for Mrs. Obama and she just has such high standards, right? She was always editing, always, you know, it always, the speeches always started with her, right? She was like, here's what I want to say. And she would just dictate paragraphs and paragraphs of beautiful language that I would just type very quickly on my laptop. You know, she knows who she is and she knows what she wants to say. So the key is really to get that from her and then to kind of shape it into a speech. But then she just was always editing, uh, you know, just has such high standards and just always making me a better writer. I was very lucky to work for her. That's incredible. I want to come back to it a little bit. I want to hear more about, you know, your experience at Harvard. Um, First of all, Harvard has a very strong Jewish population. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have any interaction there? Or was it just, just kind of Jews by association? And <laughs> what were you involved with at Harvard? And it, it yeah. sounds like you were a real, like, almost a, a, a lifetime Harvard person with, you know, both undergrad <laughs> and law school. So right. Yeah. So I, you know, I had, I think I went to Hillel once and felt like everyone there was much more Jewish than I was. And I didn't, 
I hadn't gone to camp. I didn't know what the rituals were. I just felt very out of place. So I, I never went back again. Um, but you know, many of my friends were Jewish. I've always been proud to be Jewish, even if I didn't know what that meant, right? I think, you know, the Pew survey says that 94% of Jews are proud to be Jewish, which is great, right? That's so beautiful. But it's like, what will, okay, so what, right? Like, what do we do with that? What does that mean? Um, so I, I, I did a major, which was sort of an interdisciplinary political and social science and political theory kind of major. And, you know, I did, I was on student governments. I did some volunteer work with children, um, you know, just women's leadership programs, things like that. And I did internships in politics in my summers. Did you have aspirations of going into politics or you always knew you'd be in some sort of ancillary or supporting role? Definitely ancillary or supporting. When I was really young, I wanted to run for office. Then when I actually saw what that involved, I decided that was not for me. I, the idea of asking people for money for fundraising, I don't want to do that. I also just think the amount of privacy that you give up, just the relentless scrutiny, it's very, very tough. I mean, it sounds like you, you were with this friend of yours together and he kind yeah. of one direction and you went the other. Yeah, exactly. Like he, you know, he ran for Congress and did, you know, did very well. He's a very impressive guy. And yeah, we totally two different directions. Why law school? That's a great question. I, my first two speechwriting jobs were really kind of failures, right? Like I was, I took a very junior job in state government, which I didn't really like. Then I was a speechwriter for a senator on Capitol Hill and I just didn't know how to write. So after nine months, the chief of staff basically said, you know, you should really go to law school. That would be a better fit for you. <laughs> so I just thought like, uh-oh, you know, I'm like, okay. Um, I figured I, I thought I would be a lawyer, right? I, I thought that was something I might like to do. Um, it became pretty clear to me in law school that maybe it was not my passion. Um, but, you know, I worked at a fantastic law firm for a couple of years between my speech writing jobs and I, I just worked with wonderful people who I absolutely love. And, you know, even though the law was not my passion. I'm glad I did it because I, I really have a great group of folks from that experience. Who were like the, uh, the top professors that you got to interact with there? Oh gosh, at Harvard. I mean, I, I had some great professors. Um, you know, I took a negotiation class my uh, second year, which was just wonderful. I, I still, I think I, I still use a lot of what I learned in that class. Uh, but I never took, I actually never took classes from the really famous professors like, like Alan Dershowitz. Dershowitz, who's been Tribe. on the podcast, although he's in a little oh, bit has of, he? He's You're been on the kidding. podcast, although nowadays, you know, there's a little bit of controversy, so. Yeah, it's a little under, yeah, no, I never mm. took any classes with him, so I didn't, I didn't get that kind of Harvard experience, but I was also working on a campaign for a lot of it, so, you know. Were you impressed by the caliber of, of your peers, or did you feel like that was kind of overstated? Oh, I was very impressed. I mean, people were so smart and so thoughtful and hardworking and dedicated. Yeah, I thought people there were just great. Was there a major difference between the undergraduate and the graduate because you had both yes. experiences, interestingly? They're very different. Um, I think the undergraduate just felt very diverse to me, not just in terms of the backgrounds of students, but in terms of their interests, right? Hmm. You have your science friends and your artsy friends and your athletes and you know people just with such different interests. Whereas in law school, it's sort of like you take all of the student council and all of the student newspaper and you kind of smush them together and like, you know, that's kind of what you've got. Like it's a much narrower set of interests. So I, I missed my funky artsy friends and my science friends. And, you know, I just, I missed that quirkiness from college. I think I, that there's just a different kind of feel to it. But still, I, you know, some of my best friends are folks from both law school and college. So I feel very lucky. Have, any, have, those. Of those, have any of those classmates gone on besides the, the congressman? To yeah. Any, uh, 
any positions of, uh, of renown? Unfortunately, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, Tom Cotton, who was a interesting Senator from Arkansas was in my okay. class. Uh, I have some serious disagreements with basically most of everything is done, but yeah, that's, um, I'm sure. And I think there are, there's a wonderful guy named Baratunde Thurston who I went to college with, who's become a very accomplished comedian and writer and just, fascinating guy um dara horn who is oh, a, sure. a wonder brilliant novelist, novelist. Yeah. she is one of my best friends and she really? was in my class in college yeah very lucky and a woman named abby hing who is about to publish a young adult novel which is getting a ton of acclaim it's really it has it's all asian american characters and it's about it's called love boat taipei which is about the it's just it's really cool and exciting and actually dara abby and i lived in a house together when we were in college one summer in Washington, D.C., believe it or not. So three authors, it was, it was pretty unusual. Wow, yeah, I could see, it seems like there was a lot of writing uh, power there, not just the uh, legal power. Yes, <laughs> yes. Interesting, so now you were doing these campaigns be both before law school, during law school, also afterwards, like what was kind of the chronology of your practical experience in that field? Yeah, so I, you know, um, my third year of law school, Josh and I got jobs on General Wesley Clark's primary campaign in 2003 for president. And we kind of moved back and forth between Arkansas and Cambridge, right? Just kind of handling classes and working on the campaign, which was not pretty easy. Si pretty, pretty similar environments, right? Exactly, right. Exactly. <laughs> Very close to each other. I mean, it was, it was fine. I, you know, probably attended class more than many third year law students. So I, you know, but it was hard, right? That was very challenging. And then after law school, I got a job on John Kerry's 2004 presidential campaign as a speechwriter, and then he lost. And then I was a lawyer for two years, and then I was Hillary Clinton's chief speechwriter in 2008 for her campaign. Oh, wow. And, and, yeah, and then after she conceded, I got hired on, uh, on Obama's campaign. Interesting. So at some point, obviously, you learned how to write speeches because uh, right. you, went to, you went to law school because you were, quote unquote, a failure in that regard. Right. What, uh, what happened that you actually became not just not a failure, but something far more than that? Yeah, I think it really was working with Josh in law school. You know, he had he had this you know, incredibly impressive experience writing for President Clinton. And I think he really had a sense of how you write to be heard rather than read. He really understood how to structure a speech and he taught me those skills. So I think that's when I really learned the nuts and bolts. And then working for the Obamas is when I just became a much better writer because they are so good. Like you just have to up your game by a thousand <laughs> to write for them. It's really, yeah, they're amazing. So take me through the mechanics of speech writing. It's so interesting because I would imagine on the one hand, you want to demonstrate your own literary or, you know, whatever the equivalent is in speech writing skills. And yet really what you need to do, I would, I would envision is you have to take on the persona of the individual who's going to be giving the speech. And so right. what's really kind of the, the, is it more of a psychological ability? Is it more, is it a writing ability? What is like the core strengths needed, the core competencies needed and how do you really become great at that craft? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think it helps just to be a good writer in general. I think having that base of skills is very important. But in terms of becoming good at the craft, I think it really helps to work for someone who is a great writer and speaker themselves. Because, you know, working for Michelle Obama, I would just sit down with her and say, what do you want to say? And she would just dictate like pages and pages and paragraphs of beautiful language, themes, ideas, stories, statistics. You know, she is someone who knows who she is and she always knows what she wants to say. And so I would just type that as fast as possible. And that really became the basis for my drafts. 
And she was very involved in the whole process. So once I gave her a draft, she would then edit and edit and, you know, go over it with me and say, okay, this part doesn't work. Here's how we have to fix it. You know, or like, I like this part. This is good. So I just was constantly getting her feedback and hearing her voice. And I think that that's really how you get to understand someone's voice. I mean, here's the thing, like, if I said to you, hey, you know, I need you to write a speech in the voice of someone you're very close to, someone in your family, a friend on this topic, you could do it, right? Like, you know what that person's going to say, you know how they're going to say it. And I think speech writing is a little bit similar. Like once you really get to know someone and get, get a sense of them, you can kind of, you know, channel them and mimic them a bit. And, you know, to do that with Mrs. Obama, who just gives you so much, right? She just pours so much of herself into it. It just, it was a joy. So, I mean, if she was really dictating so much, then what would be the room for you as a creative talent to come yeah. in and, and express yourself? If she's kind of, you know, why is it more than just kind of cleaning up her thoughts? Where do you get to right. express yourself? So, um, you know, when you're someone a speechwriter, it's really not about expressing yourself, okay. right? You are there to channel their voice. So that's not really the job. But, you know, a lot of it came in how I structured it, right? It's putting it together in the form of a speech, right? Making sure it has a good narrative arc, good stories, you know, adding some language, you know, that I thought should enhance what she was doing. You know, it's really a partnership. It's a collaboration. Um, but yeah, no, it is not, it's not about expressing your own voice or thoughts. It's really, it's about, that's what, you know, as a speechwriter, you are serving other people's voices and thoughts and, and interests. But, you know, people often ask me, well, what happens when you disagree with oh, the person you write for? That was my next question. For? There we go. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what happens when I disagree with the person I write for? I don't, period. I don't write for people with whom I disagree. I, I think that's morally... I thought you were going to say you don't, you don't disagree. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, you don't no, no, write. I, I, Right. And here's the thing, like, I, I don't disagree, right? Like, I, I only, you know, I only write for people with whom I agree, because I think it's morally very problematic to be writing speeches for causes you don't believe in, or that take positions that you think are harmful, right? I think that that's just morally wrong. You know, I just, I don't think that that's, you know, I, I, I write because I have certain values, and I want to see those values promoted in the world. I don't write just for the sake of writing. But there must be a gray area, right? I mean, even someone you agree with, in some general sense, you're not going to see eye to eye on every nuance of every issue, right? So, so how do you square that? So you do sometimes run into situations where like, even if you agree with the person on values and issues, you disagree on the way that they want to say something, right? You just think like, ooh, I don't think that's very effective, or I think, I, I think this will be a better way to do it. And in those cases, I would speak up, right? Mrs. Obama doesn't want, you know, they don't, she doesn't want yes people around her. Like your role as staff is to speak up and she really wanted like her staff to share opinions and challenge her. And so I would sometimes say like, Oh, what if you said it this way instead? And you know, once in a while she'd say like, Oh yeah, that works. But a lot of times she'd just say, you know what? I, this is how I feel. It, you know, this is how I want to say it. And I have to tell you, I think she was pretty much always right. Like I would, <laughs> I would watch her say it and I would think, yep, that was much better than, than my idea. Okay. <laughs> right. Like, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not the one at the podium, right? She is, and she knows herself, and she knows how she feels and how she speaks. And so I, you know, I was very lucky to work for her. It must be interesting watching the speech actually being delivered and kind of running through your mind the alternate versions or the, you know, the cutting room floor and you know, what didn't <laughs> right. get said. Right. Kind of, uh, kind of experience. So what's kind of like the day, the day to day of a speechwriter? Like how many speeches are you writing per day, per week, month, I don't, however the cycle goes, you know, with someone like Michelle Obama, I mean, is it on the, is it, and is it different when you're on a campaign versus when you're in an administration? What's kind of yeah. the, the, the flow? 
So, you know, it's so erratic. Like, I wish I had like a key, you know, some week you might be writing three or four speeches and juggling and really stressed. Some weeks are quieter, right? Where maybe you're just working on one speech or even no speeches, right? It's, it really depends on the person's schedule. Um, I will say the difference between, I think, campaign and White House speech writing, especially with the president, you know, campaigns, it's like you're just spending a lot of time speaking to like stadiums filled with screaming people, right? They're excited. It's rallies. It's like rah, rah. But, you know, when you are commander in chief, when you are first lady, a lot of your remarks are not that, right? You're in a room of 200 people in the East Room of the White House, and it's very formal and very quiet. And you're not going to scream and, you know, rile people up, right? It's a different role. It's a different kind of event. And oftentimes the venue of the event really does influence the kind of speech you give, right? It just, you know, you wouldn't give a quiet, sober speech to a rally, nor would you give some, you know, crazy, you know, high energy speech to 50 people in a conference room, right? So I think that the venues really dictate a lot. So are some writers better at one type of format than another? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are some writers who really like policy speeches, like speeches about policy. They just, they, they just find that fun. There are some writers who like more emotional speeches, like commencements, eulogies. That's me. I like those kind of speeches. There are some writers who really like- We're not going to psychoanalyze you that you love you writing eulogies. I know, exactly, right? <laughs> but it's more just like the chance to celebrate someone, right? Okay. To celebrate their life and honor them. And, you know, some writers really like humor speeches, right? They're very funny and they enjoy the kind of joke writing. So, yeah, people have different preferences, but you do have to do it all. And do you work typically in a team or is it really just you and the candidate? Just you and the person. Yeah, you rarely, I mean, I had a team of colleagues who were each, you know, we were each writing a different speech for people and we were very close and really supportive of each other. But, yeah, it would be, it's very inefficient to write with other people. Like, it just, it just takes a lot of time. The one exception to this would be the State of the Union. I was going to ask. That usually has, yeah, that usually has two writers, one who does the domestic policy part and one who does the foreign policy part. Interesting. Did you ever get to work on one of those? No, and I'm very glad because they're really hard speeches and everyone in the whole administration wants to like put their policy and their idea in. So it's just, it's a really difficult, unwieldy speech to write. Who is your favorite speechwriter? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I think there, I mean, there are so many good ones. You know, I think Peggy Noonan, I think was a really, had some great speeches for Reagan. Um, I think, you know, some of Bush's speechwriters, President George W. Bush had some really quite extraordinary speeches. I think his speech to a joint session of Congress after 9-11 is really, truly one of the great speeches. Um, I think, you know, a lot of my colleagues in the Obama White House, I think are just amazing, right? I just loved working with them and, just kind of awed by their talent. Um, so yeah, I think there, there are a lot of great writers out there. It's interesting because you know, earlier you mentioned that you find it hard or you would find it, I guess, objectionable or, or difficult to write for someone with whom you don't agree. But some of the great writers you cited were representing candidates that you probably wouldn't have voted for or, or didn't yeah. vote for. Um, sure. I mean, there, there, there are talented speechwriters who promote all different kinds of values, right? Like it's not, you know, talent is everywhere, right? Even if I don't agree with them, I can recognize their talent. And I will say, you know, I look at Bush's speech after 9-11 and I don't think, you know, it doesn't, it's, that wasn't a partisan speech, right. right? That was a very, it was a beautifully unifying and, you know, not in any way partisan. Yeah. What's the speech that you're proudest of? Oh, what a great question. Um, Probably two of them. I think the 2016 Democratic National Convention speech where she said, when they go low, we go high. Her line, mm -hmm. not my line. I did not come up with that line. She did. Can't take credit for it. 
I think that one, and also she gave a speech in October of 2016 in Manchester, New Hampshire, just in the wake of Trump's comments where he was bragging about sexually assaulting women. And she really reacted pretty strongly to that and just the, the kind of misogyny that we were seeing and hearing and just the crude and really um, just nasty language about women that was really disheartening. And she gave just a very powerful emotional speech about how wrong that is and how, how just how deeply um, you know, horrifying it is. And that one I was very proud of. Like I think that touched a lot of people very deeply. Um, it was kind of an early Me Too speech in a way. Like I think it was sort of almost a year before that movement became national. You know, she was sort of hitting on those themes, and I was really proud to work on that. Tell me some of your you know, personal reminiscences of working with such high-profile people. It must be that you know, I imagine there's these late. I'm picturing at least these kind of like late night writing sessions and like intimate settings. And I don't know, maybe with a, a tub of ice cream or something. You know? <laughs> what, 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 like. So, yeah, not so much, right? Like, I mean, Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Obama is very organized, right? Like, she doesn't do things at the last minute. She is a lawyer. She is a lot, you know, she's this brilliant Princeton and Harvard educated lawyer. She does not play, right? Like, things are done in advance. She's really organized. So it wasn't like 3 a.m. and we're, you know, eating Cheetos and trying to finish a speech, right? Like, that's- Fuzzy socks, you know, on the floor. Right, exactly. No, it was a very much more professional. But like, there was a lot of warmth and a lot of humor and like a lot of teasing, right? Like there was just that kind of, you know, she's a really warm and kind of informal person, right? And she's a big hugger and she's just, I don't know. I, I just have a lot of nice memories of her being really gracious, right? Like getting onto a plane after we were leaving an event and her being like, hey, great work on that speech. Thank you. You know, I just like, you know, we would generally, you'd like, I'd sort of walk by her seat because she was sitting up front and she just was like, nice job. You know, she had this very, um, just supporting kind of loving persona for her staff, which is, you know, you don't work with someone for eight years unless they're right. pretty great. I would yeah. Imagine. I mean, yeah. Is it, is it the kind of relationship because I, I'm so completely ignorant about how relationships would function at this level of government. Yeah. Like, is it the kind of thing that it's a, a persisting relationship? Like, is it a, an enduring personal relationship or it's kind of so yeah, you know. No, I mean, it's funny. I've certainly, I've seen her a number of times since the White House, right? Just like at, you know, gatherings. I've helped out with a few things. And when my book came out, she sent the most beautiful tweet. It was like, it still makes me cry whenever I look at it. It was really, really lovely. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I see her, you know, I don't see her very often because like, I don't work for her anymore. But yeah, I feel like it's like a family relationship, right? You're kind of always part of the family. And that to me is, you know, what a gift, right? But after the White House, it's not the kind of thing that becomes much more informal or kind of just, hey, let's, let's grab coffee kind of thing. No, I mean, that might be the case with some staff. No, not with, not really, because she's pretty busy. I would imagine, fine. yeah. So yeah. we're not like, not like, oh, let's go get Manny Patties, right? Like, right. I, you know, but I have seen her and it's just, yeah, it's really, it does feel like a family kind of relationship. How about with the president himself? What was your level of getting his access to that or? Yeah, you know, when I was writing for him at the beginning, I met with him a bunch of times about speeches. He is just like a lovely, gracious, very classy guy. Like I just, he was a joy. And I've seen him a few times since then as well, just like doing various, you know, helping out with various things. And he's just, he's great. And we would joke about, whenever I'd run into him, we'd like joke about writing a book and how hard it is. <laughs> I was like, like, I think your book's probably going to sell a little bit more than mine. Maybe, you know, maybe a few more copies, but you know, we're <laughs> just funny. A few more. A few more. <laughs> right. Now, were you ever kind of approached by anyone within the Jewish community or things like that to sort of, I don't want to use the word lobby, but sort of, you know, 
interface about issues related to Israel. And, you know, and, and in general, I think, you know, the Obamas were not necessarily beloved within the pro-Israel community, or at least some parts of it uh, for some of the policies. And, you know, one of the, I think one of the conflicts people have in the modern political uh, situation is that many people are enamored of the current president's policies on Israel while less than enamored with other aspects uh, thereof and, and maybe have the exact inverse kind of association with, with the previous administration. How do you kind of deal with that? You know, I don't, I don't know your own personal stances on things like Israel and things of that nature, mm-hmm. but how did that all come into play? And how did you, um, and, and were you ever kind of put in that position as a, sort of a middle, an in-between kind of figure? Yeah, I was always baffled by that, given just the incredible support he gave for Iron Dome during the attacks. My, I think he was a fantastic friend to Israel. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little confused by that. Um, no, but no one was really lobbying me because I, you know, I worked. I didn't do foreign policy. I didn't do policy at all. Right? That that would have been there's really nothing. You know, I'm first lady speechwriter. Right? Like I'm not. It just wasn't really my role. Um, yeah, I'm also just a little shocked by the any support for Trump in the Jewish community. I, I don't. Yeah, it's just, I think we as Jews know so well the dangers of a leader who deliberately whips up bigotry and hatred and bias against minorities. I think we as Jews, that should strike such fear in our hearts. And, you know, you can say, well, well, it's not, you know, he loves Jews. It's not us. It's just those others. But, oh, I think that's a, a little bit of a misunderstanding. You know, if you study the writings of neo-Nazis and white supremacists, they generally don't say things like, well, I love Muslims, but I hate those Mexican immigrants, or, oh, I adore African-Americans, but oh, I hate Jews. They hate all minorities. So when you have a president who kind of, you know, does a little sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, kind of does the dog whistle and the kind of, you know, support of them, and they feel inspired and enabled and and excited, and they feel seen and heard and kind of like invited into the mainstream, that's very bad for Jews. I guess the I guess the pushback would be just on Israel, where people feel like, look, he he moved the embassy, he removed pressure from, you know, the administration. You know, they they. Uh, so I'm just curious, how did so? Like that. Yeah. yeah. So just moving the embassy, did that, you know, in terms of security funding and in terms of you know economic prosperity? You know, when I look at what's good for Israel, I really want to know: does this make Israel more secure? Does it make it more prosperous? So I'm just you know just to clarify, how did moving the embassy do those things? I guess I guess the argument would be that sort of a symbolic move. A symbolic move, yes. A, a, yeah, a, symbols don't mean they just symbols like don't. Yeah, symbols don't. I'm 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 maybe I'm just I'm not a cheap date, right? Symbols don't mean <laughs> a lot to me. I want to know: Are you making Israel more secure, and are you making it more prosperous? That's going to be my measure. So I just that's where I'm a, a little less. Yeah, I'm not quite clear. Okay, fair enough. I, I hear it. Yeah, I'm not I'm not making the argument either way, but I think that's definitely a perception out there. Yeah, it's a perception. I just yeah, I don't know. Israel and kind of, you know, sort of leaned on Netanyahu to do certain things or whatever it might be. And you know, there was Yeah, I just I think in like in I think empowering Netanyahu to make statements about annexing the West Bank, like I don't I'm not sure that's great for Israel. Like I guess I just don't I don't see the long game on how that that's great. So I'm I'm just not yeah, I don't I, I I'm just not seeing it. I want to know, do you make Israel more secure? Do you make it more prosperous? That's what I care about. I guess, you know, like I was just listening to Eugene Kontranovich was talking about how at the end of the Obama administration, there was kind of a, revi- a reversion to a different policy on settlements or kind of reviving an old State Department uh, standard on, on settlements as opposed to what had been kind of the traditional policy over Reagan and, and Bush and things like that. So there, there definitely was a sense that Obama was courting 
the broader Arab world in a different way than other administrations. I'm by no means an expert in, uh, in any of these things. Just, you know, I, I, yeah. think, I think there, there certainly seemed to have been some sense that there was less outright support. And again, maybe you'll say it was just symbolic or, or just a matter of rhetoric, but rhetoric also matters, right? And there's the same thing you could say on the current administration, it's a lot of rhetoric, what's actually being done, right? So I don't know. I'm not, again, I'm, not, I'm far from an expert. Yeah, in I guess I just think back to the, the incredible funding Obama gave during Iron, you know, during the Gaza war where, you know, the support for Iron Dome, thank God, right? I think that there was a real spirit of priest steadfast ally for Israel's security. And I saw, I saw the U.S. really being a great partner for security with Israel. That was very important to me. Again, like security, prosperity. That's what I'm looking at. I'm just not seeing a lot in the Trump administration that's doing that for Israel. I think there have been a lot of, I get it, like there's a sort of symbolic, you know, posturing and things like that. And I just, again, I'm not a cheap date. I, I want to see, I want to see some real results and I'm not, I'm not seeing it. Fair enough. Got it. Mm -hmm. So when you were doing all the speech writing at some point, did you decide that you wanted to stop speech writing or would you have continued if it was another democratic administration and kind of where did things go? I mean, I know government yeah. is so fickle because right. the administration is like, okay, <laughs> what's right. next? how did, how right. did that go for you? You know, it's funny. I think I was, you know, it was eight years speech writing in the White House plus two years on the Clinton and Obama campaigns beforehand. So that's a decade. So by the time it ended, I was really ready to move on, right? Even if Hillary had won, I love her. I think the world of her, she is just, you know, someone I've admired my whole life. I probably, I would not have wanted to stay and do more speech writing, right? Like I think I was just ready to do something different. So I think, you know, that's a long time to be doing speech writing. So yeah, do even people, if- Do even people if do seven, it for decades or is it the kind of thing where people do really just yeah. limit it to a, a certain period? You know, people, it's funny, it, there are some people who do it for a whole career, right, who make a career out of it, but a lot of people don't, right? Like, they'll, they'll be in the White House for a while, and then they'll go become journalists, or, um, you know, like you see, you know, David Frum and Michael Gerson are both from the Bush administration, they're both, like, like, sort of journalists and kind of public thinkers, they do a lot of really great writing now. Um, Peggy Noonan is a columnist. Right. You look at like Michael Waldman, who is Clinton's chief speechwriter. He now runs the Brennan Center for Justice, where he do, that's more policy stuff. So typically, you won't see people do it forever after the White House. You know, they kind of move on to other other things. But then there are also plenty of White House speechwriters who start their own speechwriting companies, and they do writing for CEOs and celebrities and nonprofit leaders. So I have a lot of colleagues doing that now as well. It's interesting because speechwriting, like we said, is such a specific. I know. Specific, you know, it's like so specific. What would you do? Like, it's like really switching careers entirely. It's yeah. not like it's not like a ladder. It's not like a linear trajectory. Yeah, that's and you're putting your finger on something really insightful because you know it's true that sometimes speechwriters have a hard time breaking out of speechwriting, right? They're like, okay, now I want to do policy, and it's like, well, you've just done speechwriting, right? They're right. like, well, I want to be a, a press secretary. It's like, yeah, but you're a speech, you know, like it, it can be challenging to kind of move on. But I, I will say the skills of speech writing are really useful because what you're doing is you're translating these complicated, difficult, you know, kind of sometimes boring ideas into moving, inspiring words and you're persuading, right? That's what you're doing with the speech writer. You're trying to persuade people and move them, inspire them, and really summon their courage and their optimism and the hope and their hope. And that can apply to a lot of other things, right? Like book writing, like being a press secretary, a communications person, you know, that's a lot of what you're doing. Um, but yeah, it is. A, it can be feel like a very specific skill. Do you think that it's that the speechwriters themselves feel sort of limited and aren't sure where to go, or it's more that others 
pigeonhole them and say, you know, you're yeah. go back to your little speechwriting corner. And I think it's more the pigeonholing, right? Because like speechwriters, the one speechwriters I know are very talented, right? <laughs> like they could absolutely, you know, they could do totally unbiased. <laughs> totally unbiased, right? I'm totally unbiased. I'm just By the saying, way, all the speechwriters I know are very talented too, but just <laughs> right? I know exactly like, one. <laughs> now. Like, you know, oh, you're very kind. But no, like, these are really talented people. And I think if you give them a chance to do different stuff, they would absolutely crush it. But I think that is a little bit of a perception and, you know, but plenty of speechwriters leap over that and do go on to do a variety of things. Did you ever consider switching in maybe to corporate speechwriting, which is probably a more lucrative field? I have a cousin who yes. actually did political speechwriting <laughs> and then moved into the, you know, the writing for CEOs yeah. and things like that. And it is definitely more lucrative. <laughs> There's no question. No, it definitely is. I, you know, I, I didn't think about doing it just because, you know, I, I wanted a break from speech writing and it just, yeah, but I, that is a, a very lucrative thing to do. And there are some really lovely CEOs out there doing great work. So I, you know, I've, many of my colleagues are doing that now and, and enjoying it a lot. That's cool. So what was your determination in terms of where you were going to go after this 10 year burning the candle at both ends kind of <laughs> intense uh, odyssey? In terms like that's, I decided to write my book after that, okay. which I thought was going to be, yeah, it turned out to almost be more intense than the White House, which is not quite what I was bargaining for just because, you know, writing a book about Judaism really for each chapter I needed to write, I needed to learn enough to write a book, right? So in my chapter on, you know, prayer, for example, like I really needed to know enough to write a whole book and then you know what to include in a chapter, right? You really do need to, and so that you know, I had to read hundreds of books and it was just, you know, it was a tremendous, tremendous amount of work. It was like a 70 hour a week endeavor for, you know, two, two and a half years. That's a lot of reading. Yeah. <laughs> Plus many years of reading before that too. So it was, it was quite a lot. Yes, it was. Now, speaking of, you know, a, a trajectory being nonlinear, definitely yes. moving from a speechwriter in a political context to a, an author of a book about Judaism, isn't, isn't a logical progression that most people would, would make. So I, mean, I would have assumed you'd write a book about your time in the White House or something <laughs> of that nature. One of those hell-all memoirs. Or something. I know, right? That would be, that, that is totally, yeah, that would be totally intuitive and logical, right? Like so so why Judaism? Yeah, you know, I really, when I started learning about Judaism as an adult, I was just blown away by what I found. You know, there is such deep wisdom and insight in, in our tradition for how to be a good person, for how to live a worthy life, for how to find profound spiritual connection as an adult. And I just really wanted to share what I'd found, you know, both with other Jews and just with people of all faith backgrounds and none, right? You know, we don't proselytize. That's certainly nothing I would ever want to do, but don't proselytize doesn't mean don't share, sure. right? And I think that I've learned a lot from people of, of other traditions, right? It's just, it's, I think it's always good to understand the wisdom that you know, I like Maimonides saying, you know, accept the truth, listen to the truth from wherever it comes from. And I, I you know, I think that we have some really great wisdom to share with the world. So I, I wanted to share it. Cool. So had this book kind of been percolating for a while before, like for a couple of years and saying, Hey, when yeah. I'm done, I'm going to go that direction. You know, I, I had been thinking a lot when, you know, when I, when I was reading all these books, I sometimes got frustrated because I felt like a lot of them are written by rabbis and scholars. So they're kind of written for other insiders and they make a lot of assumptions about what people know. And, you know, some of the books for beginners are very nuts and bolts and kind of how to, and not really a deep why to. And then the more specific books for more sophisticated folks tend to be very specific and sometimes quite esoteric. And so I just kept getting frustrated. Like, why is there not a book that 
covers the basics, but also really unearths the deeper insights for smart, thoughtful people who want to embrace Judaism, right? Who are proud to be Jewish, but just don't know what that means or why that matters. Like they don't know why they're proud, right? It's just sort of mm. this vague sense of pride. And it's like, okay, but here's the substance to your pride. Like here is the practice that you can embrace as part of your pride. Um, but I actually didn't think I could write the book because I'm not a rabbi or a scholar, right? I was like, well, I can't, I can't do this. I'm just some random person. Like I'm not qualified. It's not appropriate. Um, and so I wasn't going to write it. But then a friend of mine, he kept pushing me to do it. And finally he said, you know, Sarah, I got to tell you, basically when you keep saying I'm not qualified, I'm not qualified. What you were saying is that every smart journalist who becomes obsessed with some topic that they know nothing about and spends years learning and studying and then writes a best-selling book, you're just saying that's illegitimate. You're, you're just saying that's nonsense. I was like, well, I mean, obviously, of course not. Right. Uh, and then he's like, so what's the difference? R really? You know, you got it. He's like, just stop with this. Right. And I think he persuaded me that, you know, by being this outsider who has to come in and learn it for myself, you know, I'm really able, I think, to teach it and translate it in a way to other people like me who don't have very much background, right? Who don't, who kind of know the Torah is the thing on the scrolls, but don't really know what it is, right? Who've never heard of the Talmud, right? I think putting that together for myself, I now have a sense of how to put that together for other people. Um, and so it was really hard. You know, it was very, very challenging learning as an adult. It's hard very to challenging. explain something, uh, to beginners than it is to, to advanced students in a certain way. Oh, much harder. Oh my gosh. I mean, with Judaism, like totally, right? Like I speak very differently when I'm doing public speaking now, if I'm with an audience of people who's, you know, got a lot of Jewish background and education, it's so easy. Cause we just, just, you just use the jargon, you use the Yiddish, you drop the Hebrew. It's like very, I don't have to explain anything. It's so easy. Whereas folks with less background, you know, I really, if I say, well, the rabbis said, it's like, okay, who are the rabbis? It's like, oh, okay, when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70, it's like, wait, sorry, the temple. Like, oh, right, we used to sacrifice animals at a temple in Jerusalem. It's like, what? Like, why did we do that? It's like, well, the Torah, told, it's like, wait, wait, okay, what's the Torah? It's like, oh my gosh, so much. Well, welcome to my life. That's what, that's what I do every day. Right? Like, there's 100%. just so much, there's so much context. So I just think like, you know, the sense that you could have an illiterate Judaism, I fundamentally disagree. I think that is so patronizing to Jews. Right? It's like, oh, you don't need to know anything to really engage with Judaism. Yes, you do. Come on. Interesting. Don't Unpack that a little bit because that is really been counter to a lot of the- Yes, it is. The, People know, are the, often surprised to hear me the, say the this. Current, but, uh, especially within the more liberal movements, um, yeah. which is you know, probably more where you've identified, I'm guessing. Yeah. You can sit in services and if you don't know what you're saying, if you don't understand the liturgy, like it's sort of what's the point, right? It's like, oh, but you- let the music and words wash over you. Well, okay, then just go to a Buddhist Sangha or go to a Unitarian church. Like what's the difference, right? If you're just, if it's just uh, letting the words wash over you, it's like, no, why would we ask you to do that? That doesn't make sense, right? These are smart, thoughtful people who have, who, you know, I look at the Jews in this country and I see them, they're becoming nurses and teachers and doctors and scientists and salespeople and business leaders. It's like, they're really smart and competent. Why would we say, okay, you can just have a childhood knowledge of Judaism and engage in Judaism? That's ridiculous, right? And I think that once you actually understand what Judaism has to say, it, it just transforms the experience of engaging with Judaism, right? Like, I, you know, it's fine to ask the average Jew, like, oh, what's Rosh Hashanah? They'll be like, it's the Jewish New Year. What's Yom Kippur? The Day of Atonement. It's like, okay, cool. What does Judaism say about how to be a good person? It's like social justice. Great. That's also Christianity and Islam and Buddhism. It's like, what does Jesus say about God? Mm, all powerful. It's like, are you five? Like, no, that's not, 
that their Judaism has tons of sophisticated thinking about God. It's like, what does Judaism say about what happens after you die? There is no hell. It was like, okay, there are actually a lot of afterlife conceptions in Judaism, right? These are the most important questions any human being can ask about their life. And if people don't know the wisdom that Judaism offers, I think we're failing, right? I, I just think we're failing. I think that Judaism has so much to offer that I think fundamentally enhances and transforms our daily lives. Um, I just, if we're not teaching that to people and showing that to people, then I think, I think we're failing. And I think we live in a world where people tend to be very, I guess, intellectually lazy in a certain way and kind of just say, hey, you know, it's all the same kind of spiritual ideas. And, you know, how do you, in, in talking to people, how do you, counter, how do you counter that? And, and especially in a world that is so flat and it's so relativistic, uh, in a sense, yeah. you know, how do you deal with that? And especially, I would say, as a liberal, you know, where that yeah. tends to be kind of that pluralistic ethos really permeates that approach to, to life in general and without being ethnocentric or being ethnocentric and, and being okay with that. Like, how do, you, yeah. how do you deal with that and give over a sense of Judaism as a very distinct and uh, real body of wisdom? Yeah. So I actually think it's true that ultimately in a really big picture sense, of course, all trad religious traditions are getting at the same thing, which is how to be a good person and how to find spiritual connection. Sure. At a million feet. I mean, if that's the level you're going to look yeah. at it, of course, of course they are. But each of them has a very different approach to it. Very, very different, very specific and particular approach to it. Each of which I think offers tremendous wisdom and moral insight. I, I, I would never tell you, well, Judaism is better than Christianity or Islam is better than, like, that's not true, right? They're very different. They each offer a particular body of moral wisdom that I think is critical for the moral functioning of our world. However, you know, so, okay, so why Judaism? What, what, you know, why not just choose whatever you want? And my answer is the answer that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs gives in Letter and Scroll, which I think is a great book. And what Rabbi Sachs says is that modern secular society is like a library. You can go in, choose any book you want. It can be about any topic. You can, you know, whatever it says about how to live a good life, you can just pick, choose, accept, reject. And then one day in this library, you see a leather bound book and it's old and it's crinkly and it has your family's name on it. It just says Hurwitz. You like pull it down and you're leafing through it and you realize like actually this book is like each generation of your family writing down its wisdom for how to live a worthy life, generation after generation. Your great, 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 you know, all the way, your grandparents, your parents, and then you get to a page and it's blank and it has your name on it. Now look, are you just gonna like close it and put it back on the shelf? Maybe, I, I don't think you are, right? It's the wisdom of your family. Is that better or worse than the other books? I, I don't know, who cares, right? This is my family's tradition. And I also think it happens to be pretty extraordinary. So I think, you know, and I, and you know, the idea of this sort of universalism, like it's all, let's all be the same. Let's all be like, I, I think that's so depressing, right? Like, I don't want to all be the same, right? I think we're all, we should all have the same rights and we're all equal. And we, you know, I certainly agree with that, but I want to celebrate our unique diversity, our diversity, right? Each of us offers something fascinating. I love learning from my friends about their traditions and cultures and backgrounds, and I'm proud to embrace mine and share that with them, right? So there is that is there's a particularism there of being literate and knowledgeable and proud of your heritage, and then there's the pluralism of being excited to share that with others. Right? I'm not gonna, I'm not you know I'm happy to have non-Jews at my Shabbat table because I want to share with them. Right? And I'm happy to attend their, you know, things as well because I want to learn. Right? But I have my thing and they have theirs. Right? I, I think to lose that is is sad and to lose some really 
real beauty and diversity and wisdom. What's also interesting about the whole you know, universalism approach is that you talk about the, the million, you know, million foot bird's eye view of, of you know, getting at spirituality. Uh, to me, those, those kind of platitudes break down very quickly because you're dealing with actually conflicting truth claims. You know, either Jesus or Muhammad, you know, like you can't have all of them is they're claiming actually contradictory, mutually exclusive things. So, I, I mean, I can respect another person's right to believe in something, but I could also believe in the veracity of a particular claim over another, you know, and I think people don't want to deal with that. It makes people uncomfortable nowadays to, to think in those terms. I don't know if you've done Yeah, I mean, look, yeah, you can certainly have your own truth, right? Everyone can. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you respect other people's truths and don't, don't try to impose your truth on them, which we don't, right? Like we don't proselytize. We say it's not our business what other people, you know, that's just not, we don't go and try to make them Jewish, right? That's, you know, you don't have to accept our truth to be acceptable. And I, you know, I do understand that. I guess I, you know, you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting point, but I don't, I guess I just don't see that as a problem, right? Like I think, you know, do you're, what you're saying is that you think people are uncomfortable with the idea of like, they embrace their truth and other people embrace. Well, if they embrace truth. their truth and if you really get to the particulars instead of kind of paying lip service to it, by, by embracing my truth, I am sort of saying that your truth is at least the start yeah. or from, a, you know, from an ultimate veracity is not right. I don't accept Jesus, which means I don't believe Jesus was a prophet sure. or whatever. Right? And they do. So that's a, that's a conflict. Yeah. And that's, and that's totally fine. Right. Like I also believe that Jesus was a first century rabbi. Right. I, I, that's, I'm pretty confident that I don't, I don't think Jesus was the son of God, but is that a problem if my friend, when we, you know, one of my best friends, I'm, very strongly does, it's like, that way, right. yeah, exactly. Like we don't need to actually decide this. There isn't some like court of law where we have to like come to an ultimate verdict. It's actually perfectly fine for us to each live side by side, believing our truth. I just, I, I think that's the beautiful thing about pluralism, right? Like that's what I, I think I would embrace. I think you get to a problem where it's like, no, it's not okay for my friend to believe his truth. Then, or it's not, they think it's not okay for me to believe my truth. Then we have problems. I think others also may, but other people shy away from the entire question of truth altogether. That's kind of, you know, part of this, you know, whether we're living in a, in a post-truth reality that some people talk about and real arguments don't even matter. It's just kind of like, you know, live and let live, but not really deeply critically thinking about your own, even your own truth claims, which, which is something, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know what you experienced, you know, back in Harvard and whether you felt people were really in pursuit of truth. I work on a college campus. You don't always feel like people are in deep pursuit of profound truth, you know, as much as they are maybe more personal meaning or things of that nature. But, you know, objective truth isn't necessarily the, the end goal for many people nowadays. So it's an interesting problem. When you right. deal with religion. And I, you know, I think a lot of times claiming that there is an objective truth is just like, it's not necessarily true, right? You sort of see people, you know, in certain political debates, like both people are absolutely convinced that they have an objective truth, right? They're both totally convinced. And like, truth is there are two sides of some right. issues and debates, right? It's not sure. like that you're actually not going to kind of get to one. So I don't, I don't think that's always necessarily the best goal, right? right. I, I think it's, it, but, but I, you know, but it's sometimes it is, right? Yeah. Who are some of your inspirations in writing the book? You mentioned Jonathan Sachs. Yeah. Oh, By the way, if you're friends so with him many. and you can help me get him on this podcast, <laughs> that would be fantastic. I don't he know if you have such, that kind of pull. Uh, he is such a gifted writer. I mean, he just yeah. writes so beautifully and movingly and just, he's so learned. I, I, he is a huge inspiration for me. Um, Joseph Tolushkin is also I was, just, I was just yeah. gonna say, the real question is, can Rabbi Sachs 
write speeches? That's the real question. <laughs> oh yeah, there's no question. He writes like a speechwriter. He no, totally, he would be a great speechwriter. Yes, he writes like a speechwriter. Um, Joseph Teleshkin, Rabbi yeah. Joseph Teleshkin is phenomenal. I think his books, uh, he, all of his books are excellent. The nine questions, which, which books have you read? The, I mean, I've read pretty much all of them. The ones that really I, I think of the most are his two volume set of ethics, Jewish ethics, which is just so clear and accessible, but also very smart and deep and learn. It just fantastic. I love that. His book on speech too, uh, words that hurt, words that heal, beautiful, just excellent. Um, there's a rabbi named James Jacobson Maisels, who is a meditation teacher and scholar. He has a degree in, from Chicago in Jewish studies, and he studies Hasidism, Kabbalah, mysticism. He's a really learned guy. I'm a big fan of his work. Um, I have so many, I mean, like literally, we could, we could be at this for like seven hours. I mean, I've learned <laughs> so much from so many people. It just, I, you know, and from all across the sort of denominational observance spectrum, you know, I think when people look at my acknowledgements, they're a little taken aback because the diversity of rabbis there is just, it, it's so huge. And the people I quote from, right, the diversity of their perspectives is just, I think I hit every part of the possible spectrum. Interesting. Have you given thought to going into some form of Jewish education in a informal, informal sense? Yeah, and of course your book itself <laughs> right. educational, but you standing in a, in a room somewhere doing Jewish education. No, I haven't. I just think that's probably my skill set lies more in the writing, right, in writing books. So I don't, I don't think so, but there are plenty of good, there are plenty of outstanding Jewish educators out there. So I, you know, I think that's being, you know, there's plenty of people doing a beautiful job at that right now. So what then is next for you? You've written this book and I guess yeah. I'm trying to get it out there, which is of course, I'm sure a huge job in and of itself. It doesn't yeah. Michelle Obama tweeting it out. And uh, <laughs> I might even tweet it out as well, which would, you know, really. Please. Oh my the gosh. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, you probably have, you have a few fewer followers than she does, but you're close. I'm I sure definitely have different followers than she does. That's for sure. You know, <laughs> that's for sure. Different sure demographic. So, um, yeah, I would love, schools? I would love to write another book. You know, that would be just amazing. Maybe one focus more on spirituality, but you know, we'll see, like, I have to really focus on promoting this first one, but I, you know, I learned so much from the first one and we'll see, we'll see, but you know, you never know. I, I'm not a big fan of the idea of having like a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. Like that's just not how life works, right? You just, I feel like I'm very, very lucky. And I just, you know, I sort of take things one step at a time. That's a good, good approach. If you can, uh, if you can handle it, <laughs> yes. some people feel like they need to go to school or plan something, but you know, right. I mean, look, look at you. I plan some things, but you just, you know, especially in politics where everything is so changing so quickly and you win or you lose, like you just, you know, you have to be able to tolerate some amount of risk, unfortunately, which I don't love. I am not a risk loving person. I'm a very risk averse person. So I, it's tough. Would you ever go back into that realm into the speech writing world? You know, Never say never, but I don't, I don't have any plans to right now, but you know, I love my country and always help, happy to help if someone needs help, but I don't, I don't have any current plans. Maybe people could send in like their, you know, essays, like their civics essays <laughs> to you and you know, you know, mark them up or something. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not that kind of writing, but you know, no, you okay. never know. You never know. You never know. Where can uh, people learn about all of your writing, your work, and people see some of the speeches that you've, you know, written over time and watched them <laughs> performed or, or given. Where, where, yeah, I mean, hub? <laughs> so I have a website, which is just sarahherwitz.net, just my name. Um, who has.com. 
I, you know, I don't know. It's a great question. Can we look her up? So, Can we find her? Come on. Right? It's like, oh man, come on. But you know, I'm not a company, so it's okay. That's fine. You know, I, I actually, I'm cool. I, I was happy to get Sarah Hurwitz.net. <laughs> but that's really, you know, my website. I have a Twitter account, which is at here all along, but I'm, I'm not big in social media. It's not really my favorite form, so it's not the best Twitter account. I'm not going to lie. Um, but yeah, that's, and just, we just like, I'd be honored if people would buy and read the book. It's called Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism After Finally Choosing to Look There. Long title. That, Long that title. it is. It sounds yes. like it needs like a speechwriter or something to kind of shorten it. Or... I know, to edit it down a little bit maybe. Yeah, I might, I might you know, maybe even a touch too long, but just Next edition. Here All Along. You can remember Here All Along. And, here All Along. You know, then you'll find it. Amazing. Sarah Hurwitz, speechwriter and author of the Jewish book, Here All Along. Thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.